0: a children's story about magical and imaginary beings and lands. At least, that's according to Webster. These stories have been told for centuries. They were coined fairy tales in the 17th century by French Countess Baroness Marie-Catherine Delanois. Apparently, the stories then were especially full of fairies. Fairy tales are supposed to give us a sense of magic, perhaps hope and grand adventure. That's the idea so many of us here in the U.S. today, anyway, have gleaned. And it's one reason we hear phrases like, fairy tale ending, to describe any stories or relationships that end with bliss. But are the stories really blissful? I imagine you have thought about some of the seemingly sexist, sizist, racist, and ageist ideas in popular fairy tales. Tropes like the evil stepmother in Cinderella and Snow White evil witch and rapunzel and the little mermaid many of these stories feature white princesses with large breasts and teeny tiny waists this weird combination of childlike and being very sexualized and objectified and the more they look like barbies the more likely they are to be good so many stories seem to suggest that older women will become deathly jealous of younger women and end up ugly and alone and that a woman's worth is super wrapped up in her ability to land a straight, hunky, Ken-like man, even if she has to have exactly the right shoe size to find him, or should I say be rescued from her pathetic life by him. I know, there are still really fun parts to a lot of these stories, and it's okay to enjoy them, as long as we are, like, aware of these things. But get this, according to historians and scholars, fairy tales weren't created as parables or stories to follow like cookie cutters, and the first fairy tales were created by women as feminist critiques of patriarchy. Whoa, right? Take the original fairy tale, The Island of Happiness, written by Delanois. The story was released in 1690. The Fairy Queen and Heroine, Felicity ruled over a magnificent kingdom and showered her lover, Prince Adolf, with gifts, only to be abandoned when he chose fame over the couple's happiness. When the Baroness wrote that, French society had become really repressive and dangerous. Girls as young as 15 were forced into arranged marriages with far older men. They weren't allowed to work outside of the household. They couldn't get divorced. They had no control over finances or inheritances. Meanwhile, their husbands could freely have mistresses. If a man's wife was even rumored to be flirting with a potential lover, she could be sent off to a convent for two years for punishment. Journalist Melissa Ashley wrote that Delanois and her peers used exaggeration, parody, and references to other stories to unsettle the customs and conventions that constrained women's freedom and agency. And Delanois' central theme was the critique of arranged marriage, her heroines reposited as agents of their own destinies. Gender roles were reversed, princesses courted princes. And yet, how often do we hear Delanois' name-versus-male writers, like the Brothers Grimm? I actually had to look up how to pronounce Delanois, but I've heard of the Grimm brothers so many times. And those brothers, by the way, didn't release their fairy tales until a good century later. In those stories, women were often caretakers in the home, victimized by violent crime, and even speak far less than the male characters. Author Ruth B. Bodekheimer explored disparities in early versions of the Grimm's fairy tale collections in her book, Grimm's Bad Girls and Bold Boys, The Moral and Social Vision of the Tales. She broke down the speech patterns of fairy tale characters and shared a prominent example from the original Hansel and Gretel. In that story, Hansel speaks more often and for longer than Gretel. In fact, the first thing he says to her is, Quiet, Gretel. Shh. Apparently, this kind of shushing is common in Grimm's stories. Spells of silence are often cast on women a lot more than they are on men, and the female characters most valued by male suitors, they barely speak at all. And those are the stories that our modern-day Disney princess stories seem to have evolved from, along with many rom-coms. Coincidentally, or maybe not, women speak less there, too. A 2017 study that looked at thousands of films showed that in romantic comedies, men have, on average, about 58% of the dialogue. Of course, there are thankfully exceptions. I just wish we knew about and celebrated the earliest fairy tales and their messages so much more. Stories we grow up with are important. They can impact how we feel about ourselves, what we believe about sex and gender, our relationships, and more. If we feel like we need to be small and meek and... A princess in waiting, someone to be saved, it's a lot harder to feel really empowered in our sexuality. And of course, when we are struggling in that area, it impacts so many other areas of our lives. A few years ago, I interviewed Kasha Urbaniak, an expert in power dynamics and communication, and a former globally successful dominatrix. She told me that when she founded the Academy, a school that teaches women the foundations of power and influence back in 2013, she realized she couldn't teach women how to claim their power in any area of life without also addressing sexuality. She said one of the best examples of the need for claiming our sexual power lies in a popular fairy tale.
1: This is best articulated for me in the story of Sleeping Beauty because it's something I can viscerally feel and relate to. So in the, not the original, but in the story of Sleeping Beauty that we grew up with, um, what you have is a woman who's in a fucking coma. She's in an erotic coma. She does not feel anything. And it isn't until the rightfully ordained heterosexual man in a high position of power with money comes to bless her with a kiss that the spark of her fire, her passion, and her eros awakens. So there's this idea that for us, our sexuality lives outside of us. It lives outside of us in the idea that the other is what stokes the flame. The other is the catalyst. And also in the sense that um, female sexuality is very outside in, clothes, billboards, advertising, all of it. And in one sense, so obvious, and in another, so subtle. That when a woman feels erotic longing, it's difficult for her to conceive of it without having an object. If it doesn't have an object, she's just horny. It's weird. If it has an object, she's infatuated or she's in love. Mm-hmm. And it belongs to the other. The other stokes it. The other's behavior determines it. How the other performs determines how the experience goes. And so um, what I noticed is that with that dislocation, that almost all of the women coming to my classes had some form of that. And had some form of, if they uh, had an encounter, especially with a man that was compelling, all of their attention, all of their energy, all of their analysis, all of their concern went out to him. Even if it was like an entire world of assumption and imagination and calculation and strategy. It was the most, the fastest way to, you know, mainline the concept of giving your power away. And it happened fastest when we were talking about sex.
0: Fascinating, right? This can happen among all genders, of course, and I certainly know guys who analyze and make assumptions about love or lust interests at length. But it's often different in certain ways because the messages we receive are so different. For women who are into men, it's much easier to think that if a guy we are attracted to isn't into us, there's something wrong with us. Our sense of self-worth gets wrapped up in it because we learn that our value is so much about landing the guy, and that said guy is essential for us to have our own sexuality. So often, the analyzing has less to do with the other person and everything to do with us. We don't just want love or lust, we want value. Don't all humans want that? And these same messages affect men in wonky ways. If you're not the quote-unquote hunky, wealthy, prince-like guy, or you learned that women play hard to get, so you may as well take no as intrigue, for example, or cut them down, they call it negging, in order to kind of gain their interest, well, that's just such a mess. And sex can end up being about conquest, ego, and the one place you are allowed to freely express your feelings or be vulnerable. If you're non-binary, you've probably resisted these messages more than anyone, given that you're living in ways that literally say, you know what, gender binaries are constructs. I don't have to be defined by them. At the same time, you're probably dealing with too many folks' lack of understanding. We really are all more alike than many of us realize and at the same time unique, but we are socialized very differently. If we don't take fairy tales literally, and we challenge the ideas popularized ones promote, which of course requires awareness around all of that, they may actually turn out to be pretty magical. Stories we can learn from. Stories we could even change the world with. And some classics have been rewritten with a queer bent and kick those gender stereotypes out the window. Ash by Melinda O, for example, is a lesbian retelling of Cinderella. Peter Darling by Austin Chant asks, What if Peter Pan was a transgender boy who developed a love-hate romance with Captain Hook? Both stories are not only about love, but self-acceptance. I don't think it's a coincidence that several folks I have interviewed who've worked in the dominatrix field have brought up mystical childhood stories. Think about it. Who is more fairy tale, magic-like than someone who makes your spiciest dreams come true morphs into your most incredible fantasies and can make hot things happen with the crack of a whip. Take giantess goddess Severa, for example. I'm going to share a few portions from our chat because I think her journey really is fairy tale-esque. When I asked her what she learned about sex and sexuality growing up, she said,
2: well, you know, I have a good friend visiting me here and she knew me from my early days. And we were joking last night that if anybody were to lay out." Okay, you're a teenager now, but in 20 years, one of you will have lived abroad and had worked in dungeons. It would not have been me, because um, my parents were very straight-laced. I was raised with um, Victorian um, rules of propriety and behavior, and um, we didn't talk about things like sex.
0: So did you learn anything? Did you have like sex ed class? Um, yeah,
2: we, so we learned a little bit in school, but I, I feel like I was always this way. I was hardwired towards BDSM.
0: Mm, interesting. And when did you first start to discover that part of yourself?
2: Well, when I was little, I would fantasize about spankings. There was this uh, old mother goose You know, the poems, this old lady who lived in a shoe, she had so many children, she didn't know what to do. So she gave them some broth without any bread and spanked them all soundly
0: (gasps) and sent them to bed. And that turned you on?
2: So much. I would like, I was mesmerized looking at this cartoon of these spankings. I was like entranced by that.
0: Wow. Last week we were talking about coming out in all kinds of different ways and it has so much to do with. Connecting with who you authentically are, but sometimes who the world is a little like, whoa. When did you start to feel like you could emerge?
2: Not for a long time. So I kept all of that quietly, quietly under wraps. I went to college. I played all overseas. And then I didn't even bring it up in my relationships. I, did, I tried once and then this guy said that I was weird. And so I didn't bring it up again because I felt really rejected by that. But when I moved to New York City, I moved there on a whim. I was on a talk show, Maury Povitz Show, Opposite Attractions, where I had to say that I liked short men, but I had a friend that I wanted to visit. And so I thought, well, I'll go, I'll go visit her. And um, I'm American, so I thought, well, I could just stay here. But I had no money. I was like, what am I going to do? And so I was looking through the Yellow Pages, and um, I saw this ad for Domination. And so I called them up, and it was Ava Terrell, the grand dame of BDSM in New York City. And I explained that I was new in New York. and Were they looking for anyone? And she was like, no, we, we have all the girls we need. And I said, did I mention that I'm six foot five? And she, oh, you must come down immediately. And I was very lucky because she took me under her wing and uh, taught me how to dom, how to do it the right way. And she introduced me to poets and porn stars.
0: Still, she had a lot of learning to do. Her first client session was a bit of a whirlwind.
2: Was with this tall, impassive German man. He, he looked like Dolph Lundgren with a short haircut, and he was completely impassive. Like, he, I didn't get any feedback from him at all. And so I was like, What do I do? What do I do? And I'd like kind of run and look at my session notes and go, ah, Okay. And I'd run back and kind of try something out. But it's hard when you play with someone who doesn't give you any feedback at all, like nothing, no, no expression on his face. So I was kind of thrown into the deep end and I just had to learn by doing it.
0: Soon though, she got her groove on and now a typical session goes like this.
2: So he would fill out my meeting form and we would go back and forth on that. And, um, let's say it was a wrestling session. He wanted to feel my power. So it depends if it was a role play, I'd say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go change now. I'm going to come back. And when I do, we're going to play. All right. And you be this character and I'll be this character. All right. And if you feel uncomfortable, you tap on my leg as a nonverbal way to communicate. And I want you to feel great. And so then we just start and then we will have talked some things up beforehand. And then we just play like when we were kids, when we played, that's all it is.
0: Okay, maybe not exactly like when we were kids, but you get what she means. I do find it interesting that doming and sex work in general have this dark, insidious reputation when so much of it really is about fun and play. Goddess Severa told me she has grown a lot personally through her decades of experience in this field. Just
2: to be non judgmental, to be open, and to tell me to be kind. To people, and you know, sometimes people walk through the door, and I'm like, Some you know, someone could be seven feet tall with googly eyes, and maybe they look weird. But at the end of the hour, I will have had this great experience with this person, and I feel very close to them. And we leave, and he hugs me, and I hug him, and it's just been a great time. So I've I've learned to look past people's exterior, and I actually like playing with um, older pudgy people, that's, that's fine. I, I love to make people feel good and sexy.
0: The takeaways she hopes to ensure for her clients are the kind of fairy tale I hope we can all have in terms of sex.
2: Just that sex should be fun and it's possible for life to be exciting, that people who are sexually happy tend to be happier overall. And I think... Yeah. When you don't have that burden of living these unexplored fantasies, you know, life becomes interesting again. It's like not such a slog and it is fun to go out and explore and try new things. It adds, you know, a little pep to your step and a sparkle in your eye. If you give yourself permission to try this stuff in a safe setting where someone makes you feel good about yourself, um, You can have just a fantastic time. And these are things, these are takeaways that you can take back to your relationship.
0: The same can go for benefits to your rocking single life and your relationship with yourself. And yes, many sex workers do work with couples and single folks alike. Goddess Severa told me there is so much she loves about her work, especially this.
2: I think just the exchange of energy. It doesn't matter particularly what we're doing, but when I can meet someone, be a stranger, and then get them to relax enough that we are on, mm. and he is, he is in this submissive state of mind. I can just see the, the flicker in the eyes where they're present and nothing else matters. And then we're going back and forth and we're having this interchange where sometimes I actually feel high afterwards because it was just like so fun. And the person is totally pumped up, too. So it's mm-hmm. um, it's a really powerful thing for both people. Yeah, I, I don't have too many complaints. I've been very lucky throughout the years. I, I think I've met the nicest people in the scene, the most fun. Like, I've, I've developed some friends. I've known some playmates for over 20 years.
0: Wow. Yeah. How is that for some groovy alchemy? Learn more about Kasha Urbaniak at kashaurbaniak.com and Goddess Severa at goddesssevera.com. You can hear my full conversation with Goddess Severa by joining my Patreon community. Learn more and sign up at patreon.com slash girlboner. Since we are on the topic of sex and fairy tales— I did a bit of searching for erotic movies of the folklore variety, and yes, apparently fairy tale porn is a thing. I will leave you with some of the titles that made me chuckle from the ever so scholarly source Reddit. In a thread titled, What Would the Titles of Disney Films Be If They Were Adult Movies? User Skin That Smoke Wagon said, Booty and the One Eyed Beast. Clavis Apocalypticae had a few fun ideas, including Peter Pansexual, Snow Thighs and the Seven Dicks, and The Little Maid. And my favorite from a random Google search that honestly brought up some titles I found slightly gross stood this gem, A Tale of Two Clitties. How about taking that into your dreams tonight? Another thing to celebrate now? speaking of two clitties and all genitalia combinations, is Pride Month. All through June, the Pleasure Chest is celebrating all bodies, pleasures, and persuasions with their full color spectrum of pride sex toys for trans, lesbian, ace, leather, bear, bisexual pride, and more. Their pride sex toy collection is so radiant and enticing. Check it out if even to see the Cowgirl Unicorn Premium Sex Machine, which seems as luxurious as it sounds. It's also pricey, but fear not if that is not in your budget. It's not in mine. Something like the B-Vibe Peace and Love Tie-Dye Rimming Butt Plug Set or the sparkly La All That Glimmers Vibrator might be precisely what your boner ordered. How fun is that for a phrase? You can use it if you want. To get inspired or start shopping, head to thepleasurechest.com or click the link down in the show notes. Okay, so what if your sex life is anything but a fairy tale because penetration is painful or uncomfortable? You may want to consider Dr. Megan Fleming's pleasure pick for June.
3: This month, I'm excited to share something different, which isn't for everyone, but for some It's most definitely a game changer. My June hot pick of the month is the O-Nut. What is the O-Nut? Well, it is life-changing for many vulva owners who experience pain with penetration. And that pain may be related to pelvic floor dysfunction, having a partner with a large penis, endometriosis, fibroids, interstitial cystitis, cancer treatments of chemo, radiation, and vaginismus, to name just a number of causes for pain. And the o is an intimate wearable device comprised a series of four stretchy rings that link together and let you customize the depth of penetration, whether that be a penis, dildo, or dilator. So you get to personally choose how deeply you want to be penetrated by sliding the chosen number of interlocking rings over a lubricated shaft until it reaches the base, leaving the rest of the shaft ready for penetration. The material is body safe, antimicrobial and squishy enough to be a buffer between your body and what's penetrating you. Also, the o can be used with both water and silicon-based lubes and is even compatible with condoms. Not to mention, did I say, it is designed to feel like skin. In addition to using this with a partner, it can be used on larger dilators. And again, dilators, for those of you who aren't aware, is often a set of like dildos that progressively get bigger to help the body get used to penetration. So they can be used for conditions like vaginismus or, again, post-radiation for cancer treatment. But also dilators can be used by trans folks who have gender affirmation surgery because vaginal dilation is a necessary part of the healing process of vaginoplasty. So I'm sure you're wondering, like, what is the feedback that I get? So what is the user experience? So I want to share that I consistently hear my clients share that the Onut is really helpful in allowing them to sort of let go and be in the moment. And instead of being in their heads, sort of either reminding themselves to relax their body and their pelvic floor muscles so it won't hurt, or even just to relax so that they're not so contracted, which again, can contribute to the pain. And then I can say that although some may have thought that shower penetration wouldn't feel as good or be as pleasurable, I want to assure you that I consistently hear that it is different, but the key here is still really pleasurable. And from the partner side, what I hear is that it can be a little snug when getting over the head of the penis, but once it's slid into place, And there's penetration, even though some of the penis isn't thrusting in and out of the vagina because it's still inside something, the O-nut. It doesn't feel like something's missing. And for people with larger penises, although the O-nut may feel a little uncomfortable, I sort of globally hear that is definitely not as uncomfortable as sex would be if it wasn't used. So as I said, while the O-nut isn't for everybody... And it certainly won't work for all types of pelvic pain or vulvar pain. It most definitely is a game changer for many to let go and enjoy penetrative sex without pain. You can find out more information about the O-Nut and purchase it on my website, greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash Until next month, here's to your pleasure.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. I personally know a few people who have found ONUT extremely helpful after things like sexual trauma or a traumatic childbirth. To support this show by supporting our resident sex and relationship therapist, Dr. Megan Fleming, learn more about ONUT or place an order at greatlifegreatsex.com slash pleasurepics. And if you're enjoying the show, please hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.